Hello and welcome to the Reparadigms podcast. Today we interview Raleigh Clay. He's the pastor of English ministry at Formosan Christian Church of Dallas, and he's the host of the Pistis With Us podcast. doing today, Raleigh? Very well. Thanks, Matt. I knew Raleigh back when we lived in Dallas. And at that time, you were not in seminary. Uh, You were out working, you know, doing all kinds of jobs. What got you to go into seminary maybe a little later than a lot of people do? Yeah, that's it's a great question. I'll try to I'll try to be somewhat brief, but uh, but give you the context. So I, I never intended to go to seminary. That was never a life ambition of mine. I make the joke with uh, the pastor that married uh, my wife and I 20, over 21 years ago now that uh, uh, we were living in Alabama. And I used to joke with him that if ever I went to seminary, I would go to Dallas Theological Seminary because that's where he went. He was very influential in my life, all that kind of stuff. And it was always just a joke. Like that was never the intention. And then so fast forward, like 16, 17 years later, we end up in Dallas. I was working for a sports supplement company that brought us here. And, and started just meeting people that were going to DTS or, or went to DTS within you know, the church that we served at together, Matt, and, and was constantly encouraged by people that I should attend seminary and, uh, and increase my biblical knowledge, theological knowledge, and, and that sort of stuff. And so Ashley is a no person. And so I know that if I'm going to ask her something that I don't really want to do, and she definitely does not want me to do it, that she'll just say no. And, and then I can move on from it because the wife said and, and, and blame it on her or whatever. And uh, so when I, when I mentioned it to her, it was a couple of months after I started talking to some people like our friend Elijah. And, and so uh, I mentioned it to Ashley. It's like, I, th- I think I, think I want to go to seminary. And she didn't say no. She, uh, she mm-hmm. said, well, uh, what would that look like? And so I had to start figuring out what that would look like and talking about that. And, and then she said, well, just go through the process, see if you get accepted. And there was all kind of, uh, hurdles and obstacles there. And, and so, yeah, like it was, it was almost an eight month process between the time that, that I applied, got accepted and then four and a half years later finished. And yeah, so, so there, there was never a, a, a big idea of what even to do afterwards. Um, within my first, within my first two semesters of seminary, like I've always, I've always enjoyed teaching. I'm just kind of, uh, feel like I'm naturally bent that way. And, and it's, it's really what I enjoy. And so, uh, I was speaking to a couple of my professors pretty early on about just continuing on PhD studies and and going to professorship. And that was just Ashley and I were both just on board. And I started interning at, uh, at our church, uh, here at Formosan. And again, without any intention to go into pastoral ministries, it was just, they asked me if I'd be interested. And, and so we went. Again, Ashley didn't say no. And so after, I don't know, I guess it was within my last two semesters of DTS, they asked me if I would apply for the English ministries pastor position, and which we can talk more about if you want. And um, I said, yeah, I, I guess I'll apply. I talked to Ashley about it. She didn't say no again. And, and she's like, well, if it wasn't this, she never wanted to be a pastor's wife. <laughs> ever. And I didn't want to be a pastor. And, and so uh, I applied the church accepted my application and, and, uh, actually called me to be the pastor. And so it's like, well, things have got to change at seminary. I was doing all like, like very 
scholarly academic work and, and going in that direction and research and, and all of this stuff. And I was talking to my mentor and said, well, um, I should probably take some counseling classes or something like more counseling class. Yeah. I just, I, I'm going to need. And so the whole trajectory within my last year changed. And I, I think I took like four or five counseling classes instead of some more of the um, systematic or, or philosophy uh, classes where I was going. So it was a long answer, but it's kind of how to ended up in seminary and coming out of seminary. So did you imagine yourself going into academia kind of yeah, until yeah. you made that switch? Yeah, that was uh, that was our whole focus towards like my internship with DTS was was just to continue on in PhD studies pretty immediately after the master's program and go into academia. Was there a specialty that you had imagined you'd go into or, or what what did you think that might look like? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, systematic theology, it was my emphasis uh, in the master's program um, or major and um, and philosophy. And so I thought I would just continue on in that. And um, I, I still enjoy it. And so we don't know what the future holds with all of that. But uh, it, it, PhD studies is not completely off of the radar for us and, and, and looking at dabbling in that as well. And so. So with your interest in philosophy, were you pretty into like apologetics and things like that? Um, not, not necessarily, to be honest, yeah. um, like epistemology or one. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really interested in what the philosophers are saying or mm -hmm. what the philosophers have said throughout history and how, in some ways they've come to those conclusions in the intersection within Christianity or, mm -hmm. or, or the worship of Yahweh, uh, just as a whole and, and what, how some of those things are quite similar, even though they're approached from completely different perspectives. Mm -hmm. and. And I like you have some of the philosophers pretty early on that start to have this Trinitarian concept of the powers of the world. Now, they're going to approach that differently and they're going to call them different things, but it's it's really Trinitarian in nature. And that just fascinates me that these these atheist philosophers are in some ways thinking about and I say atheist, not not in the term that we would use it today, but but not believing in the God that we believe in is probably. Uh, but they're coming to conclusions about the, these powers of the world that are that are really Trinitarian in, in kind of thought. And so I just find that kind of stuff fascinating and how we know what we know, where knowledge comes from. So when you speak of epistemology and, yeah. and that kind of stuff and anthropology, which is which none of those things are outside of the realm of theology. Those are all theological discussions. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'm really interested in the intersection between um, what we would consider like more secular philosophy and and then theology and, and how that works together and then how it's separate and different. Well, I think it's interesting if I was going to try to describe you to somebody, I, I feel like I would describe you as, as kind of like maybe a scholar who has turned into a pastor. Is that a fair way of describing kind of how you've gotten to where you are? Yeah. And I would use the I would use the term scholar for myself, like like on the lowest means of that. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, but, but yeah, um, I'm, I'm still like very academically minded. And, and so uh, how that translates within pastoral ministries sometimes is, is quite interesting, uh, and, and trying to think how, how to speak with my congregation, um, in a way that's not heady or overly heady and just for the sake of that. And, and how that looks, especially like within preaching and, and the teaching that I do within the church. Uh, so yeah, it, it's a uh, it's a tension for me, and and it takes a lot of intentionality then to uh, to think through how that's going to look in a in a church setting um, that 
as most churches in in the West uh, or a lot of churches in the West that maybe not be incredibly biblically literate or theologically literate in in how to kind of draw that out, but in ways that people can understand. And and that's always a tall task. My experience growing up in churches, I'm kind of used to seeing pastors of churches as being the ones who are sort of trying to protect their flock from the scary ivory tower ideas that come down from academia and scholarship. And, and there's kind of some, I don't know, distrust or, or maybe some hesitancy there to, to share these ideas. Mm. Do you feel any of that tension kind of walking these two worlds? Oh, that's a great question. So uh, yes and no, I'm not scared of it. And so I, I, I think it's good that we engage in those things. And, and so there, there are different Bible studies that I teach in the church or theological studies um, that I teach within the church that kind of exposes some of those ideas. Um, because what happens, so uh, think of it, think of the theological world or the scholarly world as, as like the fashion world. So what happens in like the upper echelon and, and the catwalks and all the fashion shows, like you would never see anybody in public wearing that stuff. Not on purpose. Right, right. It influences everything uh, that comes down the line. So whether you're buying it at Walmart, Target, Nordstrom, you know, wherever, all of that has been influenced from, from the top down. And so whether you recognize that or not is a different story, but you're going to get those influences. And it's the same thing, I think, in, in academia, particularly in, in theological uh, studies and biblical studies, is, is what the biblical scholars the, and theologians are doing is going to influence what's coming down to the churches by the time it gets there, whether you, whether you can put your finger on, on that or not. And so archaeological studies or, or deeper research into, into contextual issues or, or stuff like that is going to influence how people start interpreting the scriptures and and sometimes rightfully so, but it can be really weighty for a lot of people. And they're like, well, I'm going to leave that to the, to the scholars, to the theologians. And by making that comment, they don't realize that they're not really leaving it to them because they're going to come to faith-based decisions within that influence. And, and so you, you can't really separate the two. It's how we go about bringing the church and, and academia together. And how that works and, and, and acting as pastors in some way as a bridge for those things to where we're not like pushing either aside. Yeah, every idea that gets discussed and, and believed today in churches is an idea that was once a scholarly idea. People may think, oh, I don't want to listen to scholars. I just want to listen maybe to the reformers. It's like, well, the reformers were in a lot of ways the scholars of their day. Yeah, yeah. yeah Calvin was an incredible scholar. I mean, and, and an incredible uh, researcher and biblical theologian on top of being a systematic theologian. So, so do you think being in this pastoral position, are, are you able to kind of shorten the amount of time that some of these ideas take to go from academia into typically getting shared in churches? Because from my perspective, it seems like that process usually takes a long time. Yeah, it really can. And, and so not just to speak for myself, but I think when pastors have a good footing, especially if they're like academically trained. And so like my time at DTS prepared me to, to be able to interact well with uh, research and what's coming out and be able to evaluate it well. And, I, and that's really maybe the fear for some, uh, some pastors is they're not quite sure how, how to evaluate it themselves because they weren't trained in particular yeah. ways sometimes. And I get that tension. And so I, I'm not disparaging anyone with, within that scene. But, but for myself, 
Yeah, there there are things that uh, within research that I find are absolutely practically theologically very important. I was going to I was going to say crucial, but I don't want to say that. Very important. And and there is a sense that keeping my kind of footing in in the academic world, keeping up with the research that's coming out, reading the journal articles, being able to evaluate some of that stuff, that that can get to the church in a way that may be beneficial. And that's the tension is finding out what's beneficial, what 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 would even matter to say at some points. And and I can give examples if you want. But yeah, it's it's uh, I think really important for for people to be able to evaluate those things well instead of just presenting everything because not all research is great, not all the conclusions are right, even if people are trying to be faithful and working through some of those things. So is it fair to say for you that it's not that if a new idea comes out, there's like a certain amount of time where you're waiting to see if this gets received, but you can kind of actively go look at the methodology behind that research and determine for yourself, okay, is this something I trust enough to share with my congregation? Yeah. What's really the focus for me, um, because if it's published in a journal, that's peer reviewed and that's pre peer reviewed. The fact that it got published in most journals is is the sign of, of a peer review. Yeah. And, and so people have already accepted it as um, at least possible. So if there's an archaeological discovery or something like that, that's going to lend itself to understanding a passage and uh, archaeologists find inscriptions all the time that are enlightening some of the text of scripture. It might not change the complete meaning. It, it might change it some. Uh, it can be important in how we understand what's going on, particularly in the Old Testament text where, uh, you know, we're so far removed and there's constant excavations going on. And so some of these idiomatic phrases that, that show up in the Hebrew that are translated in English and you might not even catch on, uh, they're finding inscriptions of this stuff, not even just in, in Israel or, or something, but but from other ancient Near Eastern nations or, or territories that then uh, enlighten the text in the sense that, oh, th- that might be a polemic against what was going on outside yeah. of Israel. And, and so it can influence the text and how we understand it. It doesn't always completely change everything to where it's like new information, particularly uh, besides like maybe more prominent revelation or something like that. that, yeah, that would, yeah. So you wouldn't say that modern discoveries are changing the meaning of the text. You'd say they're possibly illuminating the original meaning of a text. Um, yeah, I would say that sometimes maybe they they do change at least our interpretation. So so they're not changing the text at all. And 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 that's the difference that I would say is we can we can get to great interpretation. Uh, I think without a lot of the extra biblical stuff. Uh, but all of that enlightens some of our interpretation. And so if you think of just, uh, I'll give you one example briefly, so it makes sense of what I'm trying to say. But if you have an understanding, say, of the Artemis cult that's in mm-hmm. Ephesus or or something like that, and, and maybe behind some of what Paul's doing in his writings to the Ephesians or to Timothy or um, and trying to understand what he's speaking against, he talks about the false teachers don't give in. And then some of even the imperatives that seem like, like that just seems odd, and and it doesn't jive completely with all the scripture. No matter where you fall on on the issue of of uh, women teachers or women in leadership positions within the church or something, it does seem odd that Paul says, "I don't allow a woman to teach in in the church." In Timothy, but in Corinthians, you have women prophesying. Yeah. In the Old Testament, you have Deborah, who's a judge. She's and and so there are women within leadership and in the early church, and like they're not taking it completely that way. Some some of them are, some of them aren't. So to wrestle with, well, maybe there's something going on with the prevailing cult of the time, 
particularly in Ephesus where Paul says some of those things. And so uh, Dr. Glon, who's a professor at DTS, uh, she did her dissertation on uh, on Artemis, particularly Artemis of the Ephesians, and, and just wrote another book that's out now called Nobody's Mother, uh, which is looking at the Artemis cult and maybe some misconceptions, misunderstandings that we have, that then once you under, understand what's going on and who Artemis is, um, the text can actually become a little bit more clear, especially on passages uh, in in Timothy where where Paul says that women will be saved through childbearing. <laughs> what yeah, in the world does that mean? And it's so, like a randomest thing to say. Yeah. Right, right. But when you understand the Artemis cult and, and who Artemis is, it actually starts to make more sense if she's the patron saint of Ephesus who saves women through childbearing. And Paul's saying, wait a second. No, no, no. It's Christ who saves you through childbearing. And, and remember that he's only talking to probably about 20 women. Like mm -hmm. the churches aren't the size of the churches that we have. And so holding some of those things, um, and that's just extra biblical knowledge that mm -hmm. help enlighten the text. They don't change the meaning of the text. They change our interpretation sometimes. Yeah. And when our interpretations were maybe in the shadows, maybe we didn't, we, we didn't have all the available background knowledge to even know what that original right. intention was within that audience. Then we would expect that archeological discoveries or more knowledge of the background would illuminate the original meaning of the text, which might be different from what we thought the text means. And so in that sense, maybe our interpretations have to change, but we're not saying they need to change to something new. They need to change to the original if we've got good right. evidence that the original implied something. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's not my experience that a lot of people in the church are readily open to change. <laughs> so if you're going to preach a passage where our understanding of that passage is influenced by more recent discoveries, mm. how would you handle that? And would you expect maybe some pushback from people in your church saying, hey, this what you're saying here doesn't line up with the teaching I heard from, you know, whoever that I trust yeah. or it doesn't match up with this you know, tradition we've held for a few centuries? Like, yeah, Matt. Matt and I have discussed this a little bit. There's a little bit of a dynamic within what we know, evangelicalism in the United States, mm. where Bible reading or interpretive method for the Bible is basically to prop up the theological positions that one already has. Mm. And it seems like a lot of different traditions are teaching their people to read the Bible that way. Um, it's not just like the one camp or the other. It's like a bunch of different ones. That's how we teach our people to read the Bible. Mm. Well, so long as you're getting this theological conclusion from the text, then your interpretation's good. So sometimes knowledge of context illuminates the meaning of a text, and then we have a choice to make. Do we stick with our paradigm or right. do we, ah, name of the podcast, do we re-paradigm? <laughs> <laughs> Bonus points for working that in there. So clean. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so let, I think there were kind of a couple of questions in there. So, so I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to get to, um, so one, how I handle uh, that is delicately. I, I don't want to just present something because it's like, oh, look what I figured out. So I want to handle that delicately and in proper fashion and time. So like right now I'm, uh, I'm going through a sermon series in the gospel of Luke. I'm not going to try to bring up Artemis in the Gospel of Luke, unless there's just something there. I mean, Luke was with Paul a whole lot. And, and so like, um, but I'm not going to just try to work it in for the sake of it. Um, in Bible study, I have a little bit more of that opportunity because it's a conversation and, and they can ask questions. I can bring up things if, again, not just for the sake of bringing it up and say, look, look at this new research that we've got. And so, so I, I want to handle that delicately. And even, even if I have something uh, that that I really think is influencing the text, and and this goes on all the time. 
God is, is continuing to reveal who he is. We don't have perfect knowledge of that. And so there is a humility that we have to have that when we, when we approach the text, that it can change us yeah. and that it can change our minds when it's appropriate. And so we, we all approach the, the Bible with a particular lens um, and a particular worldview. And so if you, if you hold on to a, a strict reformed understanding of the doctrines of grace, when you read Ephesians 1 and you, and you read called, elect, predestined, yeah, yeah. you're going to read those words in a certain way which may or may not be how Paul is using them. Yeah. And, and so uh, what, what I encourage our congregation to, and, and anybody in biblical studies, is yeah, you can't just throw away your lens. That right. We all have a lens through all experiences in life, what we've learned in the past. Like You can't just get rid of it. But, mm-hmm. but you need to be open enough that when evidence for a particular position is presented and that evidence bears greater weight than previous evidence or whatever, that, that we're willing to say, okay, maybe I had it wrong. Uh, the problem is we want to be right all the time. In fact, I, I just spoke with uh, Dr. John Walton and we were talking about some of this stuff and he promotes something that I think is, is absolutely right. And it's not, uh, yeah, we want to be right. But that's not the that we're going to have trouble trying to get there. Sometimes we're, we're fallible humans. We have our own predispositions to things, our own propensities for certain things. But what we need to try to do within biblical studies is to be faithful and being faithful and being right are two different things. If I'm being faithful with my understanding of a text and not trying to impose my own systematics upon it or my own biblical view of how things should be, because that's the way that I taught. If I'm really trying to read out what the scripture is saying within its context, within the larger context of the meta narrative of scripture and all of that, when I come to a position that I've realized that I'm wrong on, that I can just say I'm wrong. That wasn't mean. That doesn't mean that I wasn't trying to be faithful in the past. I'm just continuing to try to be faithful. And yeah. and so this is. I, I think that's so appropriate in the way that we approach scripture and the humility with which we should approach scripture and learning in general. That. It's okay to be wrong in the sense, I mean, you're not trying to be wrong, but it's okay to admit that you're wrong. And I can do that a lot. Like, I think I admit that I'm wrong more than I admit that I got something right. Yeah. So if, if it is possible for one to be wrong mm-hmm. or to be less right than they could be, right? Yeah, <laughs> even if they're on the right track, if that is possible, that assumes that there is somehow a correct meaning of the text. So where, in your mind, what do you believe is the, is the grounding for the meaning of the biblical text? Yeah, uh, the way that I approach that is, is to really try to focus on what the author is saying. And, and that seems so simple. But it, it, it is really where we go wrong. We, we often approach the scripture, again, um, having been taught. And so then we, we just go to the scripture to affirm what we think we already know. And so, so this is hard to do without an example, so you'll have to bear with me for an example, but I'll try to make it quick. So I brought up the reformed understanding of, of Ephesians. And, and sure. if you just go through Ephesians, Paul starts riffing. Um, we've been predestined. Having been predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ, according to his good pleasure, the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his grace that he bestowed upon us and the beloved in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And and he he goes on this riff about being elect, being called, being predestined. One of the important things there that for me to step out of our way a little bit is to understand who he's talking about. Who are the pronouns referring to? Pretty easy. Right. Of course, of course you, um, 
but you're wrong. It's me. And <laughs> Paul is maybe doing- you're elected. I'm not <laughs> right. <laughs> Hope uh, not. Yeah. yeah. Well, me too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he's doing something particular there that's easy to miss. So if you read any other literature and it says we us our, are you in that group? I'm no. Not. And so so Paul has this this we us our group set up, and we know for sure at least one person's in that group. And that's Paul. Uh, and then we can kind of try to figure out, well, who else is he talking about? Um, but he's going to riff through all of this of we, us, our, and, and all the way through uh, verse 12, uh, he's talking about that we have this knowledge, the mystery of, of the will of God and all of this stuff. And it's not until verse 12 that he says uh, that we who hoped beforehand in Christ should be for the praise of his glory. Well, who's, who's the we that we're hoping for the Christ? Mm. It wasn't the Gentiles. Um, and, and so, but then in verse 13, this is where it really switches and it starts to make sense in whom also you. And so he goes on this big riff about, I, I take it that he's talking about the apostles because it just lines up with their vocation in the world sure. that they were predestined in Christ to present this message of the gospel. Mm. And he's, he's really backing up his authority through the whole yeah. beginning of the letter and, and yeah. why he can write and say the things that he's saying. And, and that's how he's defending it. But we put ourselves there and we think he's talking about salvation with the, the predestined language. The, and he's not. And, and so, so sometimes just stepping back and, and rereading the text with, with maybe fresh eyes or, or whatever without our, okay, so every time Paul mentions predestination, he's talking about being saved. And that had to happen from the foundation of the world. And um. I'm not even arguing about that. I'm just saying that Ephesians 1 is not saying that. Yeah, you can do the sort of the similar type of thing with like, you know, Romans 9 through 11. Right. You know, this whole thing is basically <laughs> Paul's Calvinistic diatribe. And it's like, is it? Because you can read it that way for sure. Right. You can pick right. and choose and kind of use these words that seem to have theological weight and then apply them to your systematic uh, paradigm sort of, yep. sort of and plug that in and say, you know, Paul is supporting this point, and this point and this point of the Reformed tradition. Right. And there's a reason why the Reformed tradition exists as it is, is because there is some like solid theology behind it that's mined Absolutely. from the Bible. But we can't then read that tradition into Paul or make him, you know, make his use of words be in support of that tradition. That's right. It's just very likely not what he's trying to do in any of his letters. Right. I'm not saying he's speaking directly against it, but it's very likely not what he's talking about. Yeah, completely. And 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 that's so when I'm trying to get to what is the the right interpretation, yeah. again, I want to hang on to I'm just trying to be faithful. Uh, yeah. But I want to make sure that I'm just reading well. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a professor that used to say that uh, he was a, uh, a Bible ex professor, Bible exposition professor, and uh, he would just say that that he's he's not teaching anything besides remedial reading. Because when we approach the scripture, we just forget how to read. And I was going to, I was going to actually press you on that a little bit because it yeah. seems like everything you said was just like how you read any other book, right? If you're reading an account, someone's, let's say, wartime account of their right. battle, their battlefield log in World War II in Europe or something like that. And if they say, we did this, we did this, we did this, and then let's go, men, and let's charge up the hill and, you know, conquer the ranks. None of us like put ourselves in there like, oh, yes, that's me. Yes. <laughs> or like we felt disheartened today because of a loss of a brother. None of us are like, 
Yeah, I did too. Like, we don't do weird things like that, except maybe vicariously just to experience the story. But none of us like has this weird self-delusion like we are the we. So why do we do that in the Bible? We put ourselves in as the we and we put ourselves in as the you's. Yeah, I I, uh, I grew up doing that. So I, I don't know exactly why we do that, be, except for maybe that that we've been taught for a long time that the Bible is God's love letter to us yeah, or, or something yeah. within that vein. Yeah, um, yeah. The problem with that is the Bible was not written to us. Yeah, None of us were camping out in Ephesus 2000 years ago. And, and sure. if you were like, let me know, because I want to know the secret. <laughs> I wasn't camping out at Sinai either. Yeah, <laughs> right, I don't right, know about you. right. And, and so, so these are some of the issues that, that we we want to place ourselves, um, particularly within the blessings of God and, and sure. all of these things. Um, we don't want to place ourselves in the curses of God. So we leave ourselves out of those passages. That's yeah, all. That's other people. Years. Yep. And uh, but but yeah, we, we just place ourselves where we want to within the scripture. And we align ourselves with who we want to. We leave out the bits that we don't really like. And it, we, we just, I'm convinced that we just don't read well when we approach yeah. scripture because of how we're approaching it. Do you think we perhaps start reading wrongly because of a good impulse? Because of the belief that God has somehow given us his words as a gift for our benefit. So then we maybe load into that. It's God's love letter to me. Sure. Whereas that second part didn't need to be there. That first part can be true that God has gifted us the record that is the Bible, the library that is the Bible for our wisdom. But then we download kind of the second part, which is, oh, God personally wrote this thing to me in my situation. That's maybe the false. That's where we go wrong. But it's almost birthed out of a good impulse because we believe the Bible is somehow inspired from, you know, from God, God breathed. And that's what can make the statement about the Bible's not written to us touchy for some people. Sure. That's not to say that the Bible wasn't written for us, right. but everything in its proper time and place. And so when we're reading the scripture, we should really be trying to get to not some esoteric idea that we can get inside the author's mind and know his intention. Right. But, but we can read and he yeah. has a literary intention. And mm -hmm. if we just read it well, I think that we can come to the literary intention. We may not understand completely everything, and that's a different different idea uh, in, in some ways. But but what we've done is we've amalgamated this idea of reading the scripture with correlation of the scripture. And so we haven't done good interpretive work up front, and we've just gone right into what does this mean for me? And and so we've missed the argument of the author, and we've just inserted ourselves yeah. into this thing. And so that's when it becomes. Um, yeah, we just jump into correlation and application and, and we leave out just reading well through observations and, and, and trying to get to what is the author saying? Read the literary intention of the author, hold his argument in good, firm grasp, and then start to correlate how that works with our world 2000 years later. And, and then how it comes to me or even a more communal idea. You mentioned as a pastor, you lead Bible studies with your church. Is this the kind of thing that you spend a lot of your time focusing on with people is trying to help them to kind of take up this methodology and, and make it something they're used to? Uh, yes. And, and I, think, I think my people uh, have bought in, but it is a slow process. Uh, it, it's, it's still something that like, I'm firmly convinced and it's still something that I have to back myself out of from time to time. <laughs> and uh, so, so it does become um, like you're reading it and I'll get questions. I'm like, do you want to, we should think through that question again, maybe before we ask it. And like, oh yeah. And so, 
Um, <laughs> it is something that that I'm starting to see, like like my, uh, our people within within our church, at least the ones that are coming to to some of the Bible studies that I'm teaching, because this is just something that we're going to do as practice over and over and over again, and hold ourselves accountable to it. So don't get to application way yeah. on this side. Application or or faithful response is going to come way over here. We have to know what it's saying to be able to respond to it. That's encouraging because it does seem to me that the method we're describing to rigorously contextually read the Bible and to respect what the author meant as best as we can get Mm -hmm. to the author's mind, which is hard to do, but that is the method to try to get there. It does seem like that's pretty uncontroversial once you kind of explain it to mm-hmm. people and people are like, yeah, that's intuitive. Oh yeah, that's gotta be right. Otherwise the text would be, you know, the meaning of the text would be found within Raleigh's brain or my brain. And that can't work if it's God's word to us. So the method seems mm-hmm. pretty clear, but it, it it's, it's like getting into it when you start to do it. And then it can lead to some conclusions that might not be popular with our mm-hmm. theological paradigms. Mm-hmm. That's where it gets a little bit tough. So I'm encouraged to hear that people are accepting it, rolling with it a little bit, and and it's landing with them, I suppose. So, yeah. yeah. At least willing to explore the idea. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. This is another thing Nick and I have talked a little bit about. It it feels easy for the two of us sitting here. We're, you know, we're not in professional ministry in any way. For us to explore ideas really has little cost to us, you know, mm-hmm. right, wrong, indifferent, whatever. It seems to me that when institutions get involved, and especially when like theological systems start to get institutionalized, it becomes a lot harder for the people within those institutions to have that same kind of freedom to explore and question ideas that are, you know, maybe they've signed on the dotted line and their paycheck is now dependent on them continuing to teach that set of ideas. You're stepping on toes now. I'm sure Raleigh <laughs> has signed on a dotted line <laughs> and his paycheck is somewhat dependent on him staying within a certain framework. Yeah. Well, that, I guess that's my question is, do you mm. think being in an institution like a church, does that limit in any way the sort of questions that you're able to ask? My church uh, and the leadership of the church particularly is uh, very open with uh, me being able to say some things that that even if we come to different conclusions and disagree on, um, like I'm I'm not going to I'm not in any danger. Hmm. Um, and and again, I, I would go back to if we disagree, I'm never I'm never fine with agreeing to disagree. We just haven't done good work if we're just saying, OK, well, we're going to agree to disagree. I think that we should just sit in disagreement and, and continue conversations that are productive and, and for the edification of everybody involved. And again, when we when we talk about trying to uh, get to as close to right or less wrong uh, that we can be, what brings us there is the amount of evidence that that is provided for a certain view. Um, mm-hmm. And so we, we can talk about possible views. And a lot of people hold possible views. Is it possible to understand it this way? I'm not satisfied with possible. I want to get to at least probable. This is, this is based on the evidence, this is the most likely. So, so within my context, other institutions are going to be different. Uh, my church doesn't have an affiliation. We're a completely independent church. And so there's no, there's no uh, denominational influence. And so I have a lot more freedom within that. But I'd like to say that when we disagree, I'm allowed that freedom based on the evidence that I think I can provide to, to support yeah. the view that I take. And, and there's a lot of grace that's involved there. So is it, is it the, the shared methodology and commitment to that methodology? Is that really the required shared belief there? Our leadership would likely not hold to the same methodology. 
Um, And that's not a disparaging comment, but I don't think, I don't think that they've thought through it quite in those, in in those ways. And, and so uh, how I'm approaching scripture or theology just in general, uh, we're, we're probably not thinking along the same lines in in a lot of ways, but I think what really holds it together is the grace that's involved for somebody yeah. to be able to take a different position. Mm-hmm. And so our methodologies could be very different. And I think in some ways they, they probably are. And I don't get to talk with our like really elders because they're all Taiwanese and mm-hmm. I don't speak very much Taiwanese. And so trying to get <laughs> in technical discussions, like I'm not, I'm not positive to be honest with you. And so, so I'm trying to answer that question the best I can uh, within the English congregation myself, our uh, associate pastor of youth ministry, he's a DTS grad as well. And we're going to have the same methodology. So CBOC, if, if people have mm-hmm. watched the podcast or something, um, we're going to have the same kind of methodologies of how to approach scripture, What we're, even if we come to some different conclusions. And, and again, it's the grace that's involved in just going, I mean, I think you're wrong, but at the same time, I know that you're trying to be faithful to the text and we can come to just different conclusions and, and continue the conversation and work through it that way. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's more tense than others, depending Mm -hmm. on the subject. And, you know, so within certain institutions, whether it's seminaries or, or churches, it, it, depending on where you fall on the uh, issue of, of women leadership in the church or something, you've signed on the dotted line on this is what the institution believes. Our church doesn't hold those kinds of things. So we, we have a pretty basic doctrinal statement more of like following just the the ancient creeds and and yeah. we're, we're going to hold ourselves accountable and then we can have freedom within some of these other things even if the church kind of has a position it's an unspoken yeah word. yeah i appreciate that um because i think what that actually does is it provides theological life and theological conversations to flourish if you i think if you put too many things in that doctrinal statement what that ends up doing is it actually shelves all those issues mm-hmm. as available topics to discuss because if you don't come to the right conclusion now your danger is an overstatement. You used it earlier, but um, you get the idea. There's cost to disagreeing with that. Right, right. So if you're smart, just in your in the back of your mind, you probably don't even make the conscious decision. Most people just don't talk about them anymore. Mm-hmm. They're settled and we won't debate them anymore. And therefore, there's not a whole lot of theological discussion in life, which can be an, have a negative effect on people, mm-hmm. I think. But yeah, yeah, I agree. And and uh, just to just to expound that a little bit further, what we do with doctrinal statements, especially like if we consider ourselves a reformed church or a Arminian based church or something like that, and we start making those our doctrinal statements, guess who's coming into the church? Everybody that's just like us that believes like us that isn't going to challenge us. And and I'd much rather have people gracefully challenge, but challenge yeah. theological notions or even biblical interpretation or something. This is this is. All of this is supposed to be done within community. And if your community is set up with everybody that's like you, it's not it's not a true community that's working through yeah. some things together. Yeah, the, the, the chance that a closely knit insular group that doesn't allow any other outside influence or questions in the chance that that group has the truth 100 percent is next to zero. Because There's thousands and thousands and thousands of different groups like that. Mm-hmm. What are the chances that I just happened to stumble upon the right one that had everything right? Like, oh, great. Right. Good for me. <laughs> You're the only one that's right. I and mean, you and your few. Other I don't have the, like I do not have the confidence at all to, to <laughs> you know, to make that claim. Yeah, so, nope, me neither. So, well, I'm curious about that. I don't imagine there's a lot of people if they are looking for kind of a specific church that meets a specific set of beliefs that they share. 
that they're going to walk into your church and go, oh, okay, Raleigh falls neatly into this box that I'm looking for. Is that something you've found that maybe people who are looking for a specific set of beliefs maybe don't like what they see? So our, our church may be a little bit different because we're predominantly Taiwanese speaking. Yeah. Um, we're the only church in the DFW area that speaks Taiwanese. So they don't have options. So they're stuck there is what you're saying. Um, oh, well, most of them speak Mandarin. So they do have options with there's oh, a okay. lot of Mandarin speaking churches in the area. But, but what I would say is so so a, a lot of the folks, not all of the folks in the English ministries, we get a, a variety of folks. Some of them don't don't even know if you were to say like reform theology, they would have no clue. Sure. Now, they've been taught things. But again, we go back to the conversation of this comes down from the top down. They've been taught things. And and so but they don't hold on to those things as like the absolute only way you can understand things. Most of our folks have been really open. Now, I have gotten a couple of folks that have visited and, and I've talked about issues of justice, social justice and just justice in general. And and that's a hot topic. And I didn't I've said some more provocative things, I think, that nobody's said anything about. And I said something about justice and and this. You got the woke label. Oh, oh yeah. And um, <laughs> Like big time. And I'm like, well, if, if woke means that I understand there are some systemic issues in our society, then like, okay. Um, I <laughs> um, gladly take that label. Right, right. Uh, that, that just means I recognize things and I'm not blind. And um, I just believe in Mishpat. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but with that, it was the most hurtful thing I've, one of the most hurtful things I've heard being a pastor was they said they were scared for the health of the church because of my view on, on social justice. And I was just sitting there like, and I was preaching from Amos and I like, I didn't, I don't think I said anything that Amos didn't say of what was going on there and the, the threshing of women and children and the innocent, but we have these, uh, and that's going to fall within a certain tradition that, that is, is going to talk about stuff in a certain way. And so I knew where they were coming from. And so uh, like, th those are the conversations that I'm just like, well, I'm sorry, you feel that way. And it's just not going to be the time and place to try to argue yeah. for <clears throat> yeah, it, it sounds like far from kind of the normal fear that people have of disagreement, that the disagreement over these issues has actually helped the conversation within your church and has maybe allowed you to work through conversations that if it had just been a, hey, this is what we believe and everybody kind of chants, okay, discussions you never would have had. Yeah, I think so. And, and, and there's um, like, I'm very thankful for the culture within our church that we haven't aligned ourselves too strongly. Our church is 40 years old and I'm just coming into this thing that the church hasn't aligned itself so strictly with a certain doctrinal stance on, on all of these issues that we can't have those conversations anymore. Cause as soon as you make that the doctrinal statement to change, that is an act of Congress. And, mm -hmm. and not just that it's difficult, but people get really, really, really upset. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, who even wants to be the one to suggest that change? All of a sudden, you're, <laughs> you're making it clear that maybe you you don't fall neatly inside the camp that everybody's right. agreed to. Yep. Yeah. So you have a podcast too. You're a pastor. Yeah. You have a podcast called Pistis with us. Or yeah. translate that for me. This a lot is riding on this. <laughs> Faith with us or faithfulness with us? <laughs> I would say allegiance with us. Oh, uh, Matthew Bates, I like it. <laughs> um, with her good. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the idea is just faith-based conversations, the faith that we hold together. And then we can talk about what faith means, but that, that's, that's the idea of the podcast, just something laid back that we can have these same types of discussions that all this stuff that we've been talking about with disagreements. And so, you know, I, I have people on the podcast that are 
kind of all over the spectrum on on different issues that that uh, they probably disagree with each other about. And it's just been really edifying conversations and enlightening in a lot of ways. And um, yeah, it's it's been beautiful, I think. And it's still new and it's but it's been a lot of fun. It's kind of learning on the fly as you know, you deal with technical issues and then I remember that. <laughs> that's, I mean, uh, it's just the reality of it. And uh, I always tell my guests, this is not my full-time gig. So just bear with me. In my podcast subscriptions, I've got kind of my category that are more the biblical studies, scholarly type podcasts. And then I've got my Christian living podcast. I don't quite know where to fit Pistis with us. It seems yeah. to go back and forth. Yep. Raleigh, why will you not create a podcast that fits neatly into one of these two categories for me? Right. If you haven't figured it out yet, I'm not a categorical guy. Uh, I don't fit <laughs> within any categories. And but yeah, that, that's that, that's the idea that anybody can listen to the podcast. Hopefully that just about anybody can listen to the podcast and and have something take away. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we get kind of technical. Hopefully that's not like too much at, at one time to where you can't start to digest the larger conversation within the technicalities, but also like uh, really lay level um, uh, practicality within those conversations as well. And yeah, I, I enjoy all of it. And so that, that was the idea of the podcast is let's just see who will come on, who wants to talk and you know, we can bring up some topics of, of uh, our current situatedness and talk about those things and and hopefully have really good conversations and, and see where we can come together and not uh, not find so much where we disagree, but look for the places that we agree. Um, and I think that's, you know, if if I were going to say one thing that I've learned in, in all of Paul's teaching is his main focus in so many ways is the coming together of Jews and Gentiles. Mm-hmm. And in our context, we separ- we divide ourselves based on doctrine, based on certain issues of, of the faith, based on nationality, based on language, based on musicals. We'll figure out every way to divide ourselves. We're very and good at it. Really, really good. Um, <laughs> we've become experts in this thing and, and uh, we, we're missing the point completely. And, and, and we all do it. Like in some ways are innocent, I think. Like if, if you don't speak English, like, yeah. well, maybe having a church that speaks your language would be appropriate. But, but we're always having these defining things that, that we're making descriptors for the church. And whether that's a doctrinal issue or we're reformed or, you know, we're Southern Baptist or, or whatever, and all the things Presbyterian and Presbyterian USA or like whatever. And, and we're dividing ourselves based on doctrinal issues. Instead of going, how can we come together and just have these conversations and continue to have the conversations as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, incorporated into who he is, but we just keep ripping that thing apart. And and it's really sad. Raleigh, thank you so much for your time. A lot of what we're trying to do is encourage Christians to engage in these discussions and Pistis with us is a place we would eagerly point people because there's a lot of fantastic conversations going on over there. I appreciate that. Yeah. And if you happen to be around Dallas, go check out Formosan Christian Church. Yeah. Yeah. We'd love to have you. Excellent. (laughs) Thank you so much, Raleigh. Good talking with you guys.